0: Hi, my name is Christy Kramer and this is Michigan Unsolved, the true crime podcast that is solely focusing on unsolved cases in Michigan. There is no case too small. My goal is to give victims of unsolved crimes the voice they deserve. I'm sitting here recording this on March 17th and I am looking out this window and there is no snow on the ground and I am so happy and I am really hoping that we've seen the last of it. I'm probably jinxing myself, but that's okay. I'm going to take the risk. I really cannot wait for spring. It was raining last night and I took the dogs out about midnight and I could just smell the spring air And I got so excited and I can't wait to buy some patio furniture and hang out with the pups in the backyard this summer and just enjoy the vitamin D, the natural vitamin D, because it's definitely needed. So I hope wherever you're listening that you were getting over the, the winter hump and you're looking forward to the spring the same way that I am. Although I am very excited to announce that we reached Australia this week. We now have listeners in six countries outside of the US and one of those as I said is Australia. So I know that you guys are in finishing up your summer right now. So I'm sure you're looking forward to your winter time, but for us here in Michigan, we are definitely looking forward to the springtime and we can't wait for the warmer temperatures. So if you remember last week, we covered the, the case of David Carter Sr. and how his story was actually covered by Netflix's Unsolved Mysteries on season three. So I decided to stick with that theme this week, and we're going to take a trip back to 2010. And this was actually covered by Netflix's Unsolved Mysteries in season two. And it's an episode called The Lady in the Lake. Now, When I decided to do a true crime podcast, I promised my loved ones that I was not going to do anything that would put myself in any position where there could be any kind of potential retaliation. And I will stay true to that. I am not going to do that. This case is very local to me. And with that, I am going to not mention a whole lot of names of the people that are said to possibly be involved in this particular case. So I am going to strongly encourage you to check out season two of Netflix's Unsolved Mysteries. The episode is A Lady in the Lake, and it's the story of Joanne Matouk Romaine. And you will be able to get a lot more information out of that episode because as i said I, i'm not going to share some names but i'm going to give you as much information as i possibly can so um joanne romaine was born on may 14th 1954 to william and louise matuke she had four siblings and she grew up in gross point farms now, Gross Point Farms was is a very affluent area. Um, it's right next to Gross Point Woods and Gross Point, and these this area is extremely affluent. There's homes that are just incredibly beautiful, and this area sits right alongside of Lake St. Clair. Now, Lake St. Clair is an extremely large lake on the east side of michigan over here near the detroit area now it is not one of the great lakes okay but lake st Clair essentially connects lake huron to lake erie so if you if you think of the the thumb of the hand of Michigan, you know how when people ask you where you're from in Michigan, you show them on your, on your hand, um, you're going to have Lake St. Clair is going to sit right there around your, around your thumb knuckle. And then there's a river that runs north that, and that's the St. Clair river. And that connects Lake St. Clair to Lake Huron. And then on the south end, you have the Detroit river which connects Lake St. Clair to Lake Erie. So you can actually like follow, you know they all connect together. Okay? Lake St. Clair is a huge massive attraction for the people who live in this on the I call it the east side. Everyone around me has a boat. We don't have a boat, unfortunately. Um but The majority of people on this side of town have a boat because Lake St. Clair is so close and it's literally huge. Okay. So again, this is this gross point farms, gross point woods, all of that sits right there on the lake. Joanne's parents in 1957 bought A local beer store, and this was in 1957, and it still exists today. It's actually changed names. It's now called Wholesale Wine Store, and it's in Gross Point Woods. And it's still there and functioning. It's still owned by the family. It's still doing quite well. In 1980, uh, Joanne married a man named David Romaine, and they had three kids: Michelle is the oldest. The middle um, daughter is Kelly and the youngest is Michael. That's their son. By 2005, they'd been married 25 years and Michelle, their oldest daughter, describes a lot of the marriage as toxic. There was a lot of fighting going on and she said that her mom was just kind of over it at that point. And after 25 years of marriage, they decided to separate. About five years later in 2010, Joanne and David were still separated, never officially divorced. And she was living with her three adult children. From what I found, uh, Michelle was 29, Kelly was 27, and Michael was 20 at that point. Joanne also worked at a small boutique there in the area. On Tuesday, January 12th, 2010, Joanne went missing. And there's a lot of... I don't want to say confusion really isn't the word here. But the police say that... Joanne, uh, committed suicide and her family is extremely, extremely against this. They do not believe that there is any way, shape or form that Joanne would take her own life, especially in the manner that police say she did it. The, the police, the, um, the Gross Point, I believe it was Gross Point Farms. The Gross Point, the Gross Point Woods Police. Actually, I'm sorry. This gets a little confusing because it's back and forth here. But actually, the Gross Point Farms Police believe that Joanne Romaine walked into Lake St. Clair and took her own life. Now, again, her family says there's no way that this happened. And we're going to discuss why the police feel this is what happened. And then we're going to discuss why the family says it didn't happen. And then we're going to discuss the timeline of events so that you can actually form your own opinion. Okay. So the police state that they found the car that Joanne was driving abandoned in the driveway of a church that is across the road from the lake. Okay. And that across this road, there's like a little strip of of grass and then there's an embankment and they're saying it directly across the road from this, from this church in the snow there was, um, they ca- at first they called them footprints, but later on they came back and said that they weren't actually footprints. It was more like somebody had kind of sat down. They called it a butt print and then put their hands on either side. I've seen the pictures. It kind of just looks like somebody walked through the snow. There did not appear to be anything identifiable, but that's what the police said then they said that she um went down this and um it's like a like a slope and it's maybe about 7 or 8 feet down to like a break wall and then it drops 5 feet to the lake and then there is ice because hey it's january the lake is frozen So they're saying at that point that she would have had to have walked approximately 100 to 200 yards to the point where she where the water would have been deep enough because the water was very shallow. Okay, obviously, if you're thinking what I'm thinking at this point, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But the police are very adamant that this is what happened and we got to believe them, right? Well, hang on because wait till you hear this. Number one, Joanne Romaine was a devout Catholic and she is extremely, extremely religious. She carries her rosary with her everywhere. She goes to church every Sunday, she goes to prayer meetings throughout the week. Now, I'm not saying that. Somebody who is religious cannot feel so so dark and deep inside that they feel the need that that's their only way out. I'm not saying that. I know it happens. And, And my heart breaks for the people who feel that way. But her family said that there's just no way that she would ever end her own life because of her religious beliefs she had, she was surrounded by love. Not only her children were her world, there was no way that she would leave her children, especially, you know, Michael, who was only 20 years old. I mean, he's still young. I've I told you before, you know, my son is only 18. I couldn't imagine him embarking on his life without me there. You know, so Michael wasn't much older. There's no way Joanne would have taken her life away from her son. Not to mention, she was a very cautious person. She was afraid of the dark and the water. Now, even if you're planning on ending your life, would you do it in a manner that literally terrifies you? Because you got to think that the idea of, of actually taking that, that final step has got to be so scary in itself. How if, how would you go about doing that in a, in a way that you're already scared of? That didn't make sense to her family. She was terrified of the dark, terrified of the water. She was extremely cautious about everything. And she was, it just doesn't make sense to them. So the police... The police just believe that um, what what happened, as I said, is that she walked across this icy lake about 200 yards or so and submerged herself in the water. Now. I'm going to tell you kind of what happened that evening, and I'm going to tell you right now, it does not make any sense. 2010 is not like 1970 or 1980 or heck even 1990. Okay. Everything in 2010 was digital. When things are digital, there is a digital footprint. Everything that is done can be tracked. Keep that in mind. Now, let me ask you this question. If, if you're from Michigan, I'm sure that you've heard of Cedar Point. It's our local amusement park. It's a few hours south in Sandusky, Ohio. If you know of Cedar Point, you know about the Corkscrew. This is a roller coaster that is extremely old, number one. Um, and when you when you're strapped into this roller coaster, you go upside down, obviously the name is the corkscrew think of a wine cork okay that that upside down over and over and over again the one time i ever rolled this roller coaster i'm sitting in the seat and they have this um headrest that you put your head against and this roller coaster was so rickety and and bumpy and my head just kind of hit back and forth against this headrest And I had the worst headache for like the rest of the day. It was horrible. It kind of ruined my whole day. (laughs) That is the same kind of headache that I had when I was researching this case, because I literally felt like I was on that roller coaster again and my head is getting beat back and forth. But instead of a head head headrest, it was the information because this timeline literally jumps around like you would not believe and it's it's going to make your head like want to implode because it seriously doesn't make sense so what i'm going to do is i'm going to try to try to explain this as as easily as possible but you have to kind of pay attention and and i'm going to um i'm going to try to be as clear as i can but like I said, you, you really have to pay attention because it doesn't make sense. <laughs> okay. I don't know why I whispered that, but seriously, it, it's crazy. Okay. So here we are on Tuesday, January. Of course, I can't remember it right now. I think it was January 12th. So it's called January 12th, 2010. It's a Tuesday. And um, according to Joanne's... Daughter Michelle, who is her oldest daughter, they, their family was actually in the process of litigation over with the, I believe it was like a like a construction company or something, because they owned some property and there was black mold in the property. So they had a really great day in court. Everything was great. The two daughters, Michelle and Kelly, went to dinner with their dad. And uh, Joanne had Michael with her. So this is where the timeline begins. At 6 p.m., Joanne dropped Michael off at the house. Okay, and she tells Michael she's going to go get gas in the car. At 6.25 p.m., Joanne arrives at the gas station that she's gone to for years. She's gone to this gas station so many times that she's actually formed a friendship with the manager. His name is Mike and it's a cold day in January. Mike actually comes out and pumps Joanne's gas for her because he considers her a friend. It's cold. He wants to help her out. So as he's pumping the gas, she rolls her window down and they actually have a conversation. You know, he's known her for years. He's watched her kids grow up into adults. They're they're talking about family back and forth. And Mike is very sure that during that conversation, there was nothing wrong, nothing out of the ordinary. She was having a wonderful conversation with him and everything was great. So after they're done talking, Joanne leaves and she, you know, she notices it's seven o'clock. Okay. Her church, St. Paul on the Lake and Gross Point Farms is going to have a, a prayer service. And this is one that she frequents almost weekly, but You know, she had a crazy day. She wasn't planning on going that night, but why not? She's right there. And as I said, Joanne's an extremely religious person. She's going to take any opportunity she can to pray. So, Joanne uh, goes to St. Paul. She parks her car in the driveway. Now, the prayer service at St. Paul is a very small service. It's not a full mass. There's only maybe 10 to 15 people and the prayer service only lasts from about 7 to 7.15, 7.20. So it's a very small, intimate prayer service. So she, the, St. Paul's on the lake, the way it's set up is the parking lot is in the back of the church. And there's a driveway that comes in on one side of the church. The parking lot is on the back. And then there's a driveway that takes you out. So you have an entrance and an exit. Well, because this is a small, intimate service, everyone parked in the driveway. So Joanne found her spot. She parked her car and she went in. About 7.15, one of the parishioners that was sitting in the front of the service happened to turn around and she actually saw Joanne leaving. Now, she knows Joanne. Everyone knows Joanne. She's very sure this was Joanne leaving. Okay, then a couple of minutes later, they hear a what sounds like a car alarm go off and it's going off for about 10 to 15 seconds. Um, but they're not sure if it was an alarm or possibly somebody hit a panic button, but it went off. So everybody kind of just let that slide. Everybody starts to leave. Okay. And at 735, there is, um, one churchgoer left and as she's leaving the service, um, She walks out into the driveway of the church and it's it's dark, you know, and it's 730 on a in the middle of January in Michigan. It's very dark. It could be midnight. You know, it's it's that dark there. And she made note to look both to her left and to her right. And there were no other cars in the driveway besides hers. She's very sure of this fact. There was no other cars. But then, here's where things start to get crazy. At 8.58 p.m., an officer patrolling the area finds a silver Lexus in the driveway of the church. He runs the plates. Nothing is really suspicious outside of the fact that the church is closed up and here's this car. But he marks no action needed and goes about his day. Then at 9.20 p.m., the Romaine children are home. All three of the girls came home in Michael's home as well. They see um, headlights pulling up into the drive and they assume that that's Joanne coming home. But it's not. The police are then at the door. And the police state that they found Joanne's car abandoned in the driveway of the church. And they ask if she's missing. And they're like, no. You know, she probably went to the prayer service. And Kelly, who is the second oldest, she actually at that point looked at her watch and saw that it was um 924 p.m. So they are very positive on this time because when they asked if Joanne was missing, she literally looked at her watch because she's like, no, she was, you know, it hadn't been that long since she that they'd seen her. So um they are they are very sure of the time of 924 and that is very important. So this is when things are going to get topsy-turvy here. So I need you to really like pay attention to what I'm saying. It may not even be a bad thing to write these down because seriously, mind blown. So there's a couple of things about this 924 visit from police that don't really add up. Number one. The police officer at 858 said no action was taken. There's no other um like report after that point at 924. So nobody else ran the plates, nothing else happened. But the the interesting thing is that the car belonged to Michelle. The plates are registered to Michelle. So why would they assume that Joanne was missing? And this definitely raised a red flag to Michelle, but she's more concerned about her mom missing, right? And why her car is like abandoned at the church. So from nine cell phone records show from 929 PM to 1032 PM, Joanne's children called her phone 13 times. Now, eight of those times were before 10 p.m. And then five were after 10 p.m. So eight of the times, eight of the 13 were between 9.29 and 10 p.m. And the other five were between 10 and 10.32. That's going to be very important in just one second. According to the Coast Guard digital reports, They received a call at 930 for assistance for a for the possibility of somebody entering Lake St. Clair. At 938 p.m. digital records. Remember that digital footprint. Shows the Coast Guard launched their their rescue team, their search and rescue team. And at 958, I'm sorry, 951 p.m. Again, digital records show the Coast Guard search begins. Now, here is one of those loops that I was talking about that's going to make your head bounce back and forth. At 9.58 p.m., seven minutes after the search began, the police records state that another officer runs the plates of the silver Lexus, makes notes of footprints in the snow across the four-lane road where the car was, and he calls it in as a possible person in the lake. Okay. That happened 28 minutes after the Coast Guard received a call. Something doesn't make sense. Not only that, but the police had already been at the Romaine's house at 924. Okay, It's going to keep getting nuts. Okay. At 10 p.m., according to an investigative article in the Gross Point Times, police records show that the plates were ran at 9.58. So there's actual documentation of this. The police that had come to the Romaine house actually told her children not to come up to the church. Now, if you were just told that your car was abandoned and your mother is missing, are you going to sit by and do nothing Absolutely not. Because like I said, they've been calling their mom. And the phone was going straight to voicemail. So, of course, they're extremely concerned. So, Michelle calls uh, her mom's brother. And he joins them. And they, they run up to the church. By the time they get there, which is shortly after 10 p.m. Okay, so we are talking... This, this is moving very quickly. Shortly after 10 p.m., the church parking lot is full of police cars. There's crime scene tape around the silver Lexus. There's helicopters overhead. There's dive teams in the water. And um, according to the Netflix Lady in the Lake episode of Unsolved Mysteries, Joanne's brother states when they arrived, these are his words, when they arrived at the sh- at the church, it was a shit show. There was just insaneness going on everywhere, okay? His words, shit show. They continued to search the water in front of St. Paul on the lake until 4 a.m. on January 13th. And they continued this search even though there was no sign that anyone had ever entered the water. Now think about this. The the water of Lake St. Clair in that area is extremely shallow. Okay. Very shallow and rocky. It's all rock. It's shallow water and it's completely iced over. In order for somebody to enter that area where they say she entered she would have had to have walked out about 200 yards in order to get to um an area that was not iced over and that she could be submerged and there was nothing that even appeared to have um There was no evidence that somebody had went into the water except for the spot in the snow that looked like somebody had sat down and maybe slid down this embankment. So they they searched until 4 a.m. on the 13th and they they called it off at that point. The Coast Guard called it off. There was an extensive three day search of that whole area. And then a specialty dive team came in and searched for three more days. Now, I will say this. A man named William Robinette, who was the director of the Midwest Technical Recovery Dive Team, stated on the Netflix show that he believes she was never in the water at that location. Hello, mind-blown but the police even though this is a this is an experienced dive recovery specialist saying she never entered the water at that location and the police are still sticking with suicide after the the 6-day search was over the police essentially stopped all efforts they told the family Joanne committed suicide and the next step would be to wait for her body to turn up. At that point, Gross Point Farms, who is where the church was located, turned the case over to Gross Point Woods, which is where Joanne lived. Okay. Um, Joanne's family and friends knew there was no way that she killed herself. So they took the search into their own hands by making and distributing flyers and searching everywhere they could possibly think of to look. Then it happened. On Saturday, March 20th, 2010, Michelle Romaine received a call that would change their lives forever. Joanne had been found. Now. The Detroit River, as I mentioned, comes off of Lake St. Clair on the south side. Okay, the Detroit River is essentially split down the center. And half is the U.S. and the other half is Canada. On the Canadian side of the river is a island. And it's called Boblo Island. And if you're from Michigan, you and you're my age, you probably know about Boblo. From 1980, I'm, I'm sorry, from 1898 to 1983, the island was home to an amusement park. And the only way to really get there was by a gigantic boat, which had a dance floor, and it was it was awesome. I loved Boblo. I went there multiple times when I was a kid. It was it was great. But now the island, um, the amusement park is obviously closed and the island now has a bunch of like single family homes on it. Very expensive, beautiful homes. But on that Saturday, March 2nd, two fishermen were in their boat right off Boblo Island and they found a woman, um, floating in the water. Uh, she was, uh, Actually, I want to say they found a body floating in the water because I don't think that they could tell exactly um, that it was a woman at that point. Um, because she was found on the Canadian side of the river, Canadian authorities are the ones that removed her. Uh, even though Gross Point Woods was handling the case at that point, uh, the Canadian authorities called Grosse Point Farms. Now... Here is another little twist that's gonna make your head hurt. Gross Point Farms told the Canadian authorities that Joanne suffered from mental health issues and no fall play was suspected. What? There was never any, any report of Joanne suffering from mental health issues. She was never on medication, she wasn't like seeing a therapist, there was nothing. Her family completely disputes this claim. So the Canadian the Canadian authorities do an autopsy. They declare cause of death as a drowning. Um the gross point woods Is that right? Um police department do an autopsy or their Emmy or whatever, do an autopsy. And they declare um, that it was drowning. And of course they agree. They say it was a suicide. Okay. Now the family, however, says, uh, uh-uh. uh no, they actually brought in an independent person to do an autopsy. And that person says that he cannot say for sure that it was a suicide or an accident or murder because there was just no way to tell. Joanne actually, while she did drown, it was a case of dry drowning as because there was no uh, water in her lungs. Now, we are before we talk about her body and I'm going to kind of try to get through this kind of quickly because we're at 37 minutes and I've, you know, I've told you before that I can't go past like 55. So, um, the police state that I'm going to, we're, let's talk about where her body was found for just one more minute. The police state that Joanne entered the water in front of St. Paul Church on the lake in St. in um, on Lake St. Clair. Okay. That is approximately 30 to 35 nautical miles from where Joanne's body was found. In order for her body to get to that location from in front of the church, it would have had to have float about four miles in a frozen lake with no current into a shipping channel that leads to the Detroit River and then travel down the river approximately 30 more miles. Along this journey, she would have passed Belle Isle, which is a huge, massive island in the middle of the Detroit River. She would have um, passed multiple other small islands, never washing up on any of them, never being seen. She would have passed under the Ambassador Bridge, which is the international bridge between the U.S. and Canada. And she would have floated past um, Gross Eel which is a very populated island in the Detroit River that has an airport. So people were flying over essentially where her body was found. So this trip would have been extremely rough. Okay. There's a lot of rocky areas. There's, um, you, you would think that if her body had traveled this 35 miles, that there would have been evidence of this. How? However, according to the independent autopsy, the body was Joanne's body was said to be in advanced stages of um, decomposition. So the um, it was very difficult for them to determine how long she'd been in the water. But they do believe that she had been in the water for quite some time because of the amount of algae on her clothing. Now, let's talk about those clothing, about the clothing. As I mentioned before, Joanne, I don't actually, I don't know if I mentioned what Joanne was wearing the night she went missing. Joanne was wearing black pants, a black top, a black coat and black boots that were high heeled boots with a four inch heel. <laughs> now let's think about those heels for a second, going down that steep embankment and dropping a five foot, um, five, dropping over five feet from a break wall and walking across 200 yards of ice. But, you know, the police state she did it. So that must have been what happened, right? Well, when they found Joanne's body, her clothing, outside of having some algae and some other um, water life growing on her clothing, her clothing was completely intact. Her jacket had been zipped up to her chin, which her children say she never wore her coat zipped all the way up. Her um, pockets were zipped and her car keys were in her pockets. That's another interesting thing. We will get there in a minute. And her boots were still on her body, on her feet. Her boots. And again, please watch the Netflix episode because they show you these pictures and you are going to be mind blown because her boots have no scuffs. Um, Yeah, there's a little bit of algae on them, but they are completely intact. There's nothing even remotely looking at these clothes that would make you think that this person walked anywhere that could potentially scuff them, especially on ice. She was also still wearing the jewelry that she had on that day. So her body had been in the water for over two months and she still had her jewelry on. But she traveled 35 miles and and still had her jewelry. Now, what was missing was her cell phone and her rosary, which were never recovered. OK, so if you're wondering about her purse, and I'm sorry, I should have mentioned this before. When the Lexus was found in the driveway, her purse was actually in the car. Now, one of the reasons that police state that they believe that she was not abducted is that there was, you're not going to believe this, but they said that there was no damage to the purse. Um, Her wallet was still in her purse. Her, She had about $1,500 in cash in her purse. So they did not believe that robbery was a motive. Now, when the purse was turned back over to her family, um, this was a brand new purse that it was a designer purse that Joanne had just purchased about six weeks before she went missing. And it, it has a lot of ruffles on it and the ruffles had been ripped, like forcefully ripped uh, on this purse. But the police state, because the strap wasn't broken, that it had to have already been like that. It had to have already been torn. And Michelle and Kelly both state that there's no way that her mom would carry around a purse that was damaged like that. And personally, look, I, I'm a big fan of designer purses. I pay a lot of money for my bags. And if one of my bags was going to be damaged in the way that one was, I am number one, I'm not going to continue to use it. I'm going to take it to the store and have it repaired because a lot of times those designer companies will actually, um, do repairs, they'll ship it out and repair it. Because when you, when you buy these high quality designer bags, it's an investment. And I know like with my coach bags, I'm almost positive that they have, um, like a lifetime warranty and you mean you, they give you certificates of authenticity and all that kind of stuff. I mean, these are not cheap. Okay you're not going to carry around a bag with this kind of a rip. And if you go back and watch this Netflix episode, you're going to see how bad this rip is. Now, the other thing is, is that according to the independent autopsy that was done, there were two bruises on the left shoulder that the, that the um, medical examiner believes was a, were um, prior to her death. Okay. Okay and not like a long time, like just prior to her death. And Michelle states that her mom always wore her purse on her left shoulder. Now, if that's where you favor your bag, I, all I, you always wear your bag on that shoulder. I cannot switch shoulders. I wear my bag on my, um, right shoulder and I do not veer from that. So if, if, Michelle is saying that her mom always wore her bag on her left shoulder. I 100% believe that because as a woman, it's very hard to switch um, the shoulders because your body just adjusts to that. Um, Even with all of this, the, the distance that the body traveled, her clothes being intact, the police still stick with uh, the idea that she killed herself. Obviously, at this point, I'm guessing that you're not believing that. But, uh, yeah, that's where they're going with this. So, there. at this point, I want to give you a couple of theories. And remember, I'm going to not name any names here. But in 1994... Joanne's mother passed away and her father had already passed. So when her mom passed away, she left a substantial inheritance. and I'm not going to go into the details of that, but it was supposed to be it was supposed to be equally split between the five children. And some of the kids, including Joanne, did not feel like that happened. So there was a lawsuit that went down and this caused a lot of animosity between um, the five. Um, Matuk children. Uh, Joanne did keep a very tight relationship with one of her brothers. He was the one that was with her children that night at the church. Um, That particular brother um, had had some he'd had a rough go of things and owed some people some money. And so there is a theory that there's a possibility that somebody he owed money to or something along those lines could have taken uh could have could have killed joanne to get back at him and he actually admits to this in the netflix episode so i i do definitely think that that could have some potential there um the the romaine children actually at one point believe that their father could have had something to do with this um i do believe the police cleared him But that was one person that came up um, as as a theory. Um, Another one was one of Joanne's cousins, who was a police officer at that time. He does have an alibi for that night. There does seem to be some bad blood between Joanne and this particular cousin, including a phone call that took place shortly before um, she went missing. That got pretty heated according to her daughter, Michelle. So that's, again, I'm not going to name any names, but it's all in the Netflix episode. So again, I definitely suggest that you check that out. Um, The police did not, one thing that I found really interesting is the police did not really take, they did not... They said there were footprints in the snow. And that's what led them to believe somebody had went into the snow. Originally, that's what they said. But there were no photos taking of the footprints. And then later they changed their story to say, well, there, it, there was like tracks. Like somebody had like walked through the snow. I mean, if you've ever walked through snow, unless you're like lifting up your feet, there's not going to be like a, a footprint because the snow was actually pretty deep at that point. And... There were like, there, there's a few pictures taken, but most of them are from like a distance. There's nothing straight up and down. There's no record of this, of the actual prints. Regarding the car, uh, police were asked if they were, if they took um, fingerprints from the car. And the police state that there were no usable fingerprints found on the car, only smudges. I do find that to be kind of strange. Um, How do you not leave a fingerprint anywhere? It's only smudges. They they were specifically asked in a deposition because I will tell you the family did file a lawsuit against the police department because they did not feel that it was taken, it was handled properly, and. Um, it was unfortunately thrown out by the judge, even though the judge did agree that something did not add up. He did not feel that there was enough proof, um, to, for the family to proceed with the case. Uh, a couple things, uh, somebody came up there when this, um, lawsuit happened, they were given a lot more information through the Freedom of Information Act, as well as the Discovery and one of those things was a woman states that at 750, she saw a man running down Lakeshore Drive, which is the four lane road that, that is between the lake and the church. And she couldn't really say much about this man, except that she knows that he was not wearing a coat and he was wearing a scarf. Now, the police did find a scarf along the river's, the, the lake's edge. Um, but they did not deem that it was needed for the investigation or that it was relevant to the investigation. And they actually ended up joining, donating the scarf to charity a few years after the case. So when when the Romaine children found out about this scarf, it was already gone and testing could not be um, done on the scarf. Another thing that came up, in the discovery and the Freedom of Information Act, was a man by the name of Paul Hawk, um, gave a statement that he was driving northbound on Lakeshore Drive when he saw a woman, uh, a heavier set woman who, which Joanne was, um, sitting on the brake wall, kind of slumped over, and that there were two cars parked illegally on the side of the road. The issue is here is that at one point he says that it was around dusk time and this would have the incident would have been probably um around 8 p.m and that definitely in Michigan was not dusk so the police again deemed that it was irrelevant and they did not take that into evidence or investigate so Oh, one other thing, uh, the keys. Like I said, her keys were found in her pocket. But, and i am this is going to be the last thing before we close, but here's the kicker about the keys. Is that the keys had already been returned to the Romaine children about two weeks after Joanne disappeared. Because the day after Joanne disappeared, the keys showed up at the police station. But the keys that showed up, were not the keys Joanne had in her pocket, obviously. These were keys that disappeared about a month prior to Joanne going missing. Think about that. Literally, the, key, the, the spare set of keys had gone missing, and um, they only had the one set, which was on Joanne's person when she was found. The keys that were returned to, to the Romaine children... Honest to goodness, were were the keys that had been missing for a whole month. What? What is this? I mean, please, I would love if somebody could make any of this make sense to me. Because it's not going to. I'm sorry. There, something, something, until somebody speaks up and says, hey, I did this, we're never going to know. Because this is just, it's seriously mind-blowing. But I really wanted to... Um, Thank, uh, the Romaine children for their persistence in getting justice for their mom because it's so important to th- they're still to this day trying to give their mom the justice that she deserves. Not only for not only for their mom but for themselves. I mean, their mom was literally just stolen from them, and it's just so so sad. Um, I want to thank uh, Netflix's Unsolved Mysteries. The episode again is Lady in the Lake. Watch it; it's a must see. I'm a huge fan of the Netflix Unsolved Mysteries series because it takes me back to my childhood because one of my favorite shows was Unsolved Mysteries, and um, I love that they brought it back. I, I really kind of want to make the theme song my ringtone because I love it that much. Um, also, want to thank uh, Click on Detroit, The Gross Point News, uh, Detroit Free Press, and CBS Detroit. Those are the... Articles that I read that got I got a lot of the information for this episode from. Um, I really wish I could have given you some more information. There really isn't a whole lot more. But I hope that what I've told you today has triggered something in your brain. And it's going to make you want to look into this more. Because let me tell you, the rabbit hole is deep. And you could just get lost in this one. And honestly, I may give you guys an update on this one later because... I really think I need to do more research because it's one of those ones that I can't stop thinking about. And I would love, just like we were able to give you that wonderful update bonus episode a few weeks ago about Christina's murder being solved. I want to give, I want all of our cases to be solved. I really do because it's just, it's, it's truly heartbreaking what, what, what people of the missing and and the murdered have to go through. And I, I, I don't know what happened to Joanne, but I'm going to go on record as saying, I do not believe that she killed herself. I do believe that she was abducted from the parking lot that night and she was murdered as to who killed her. I do not know, but I will state that I firmly believe that she was abducted, driven probably that 35 miles um, and killed and, and dumped down that way. Um, because there's just no way she would have gone up that river, but, um, okay, here we are. Um, we're at the end. I look forward to talking to you guys next week and sharing another crazy unsolved case from the wonderful cold state of Michigan. Um, here's to a beautiful, uh, March 20th coming up uh, first day of spring it was also my dad's birthday. I, um, hope he's going to be getting a giant piece of German chocolate cake up in heaven because he was diabetic and couldn't eat his favorite thing in the world. <laughs> and he did love his German chocolate cake. So, um, uh, happy St. Patrick's day. Cause that's, like I said, today is March 17th and I'm recording this today. So happy St. Patrick's day. Happy first day of spring. um, Happy life, guys. Live, laugh, love, all of that good stuff. I will see you soon. This has been Michigan Unsolved yet again. (laughs) Goodbye.